Hello, and welcome to the All Things Narrative Podcast, where we explore the relationships between the stories we love and the stories we live. I'm your host, Derek Hatch, and let's get started. I am so excited for this episode. You guys don't even know how good this is because I am sitting here with my favorite person in the whole world, Miss Tori Hatch. Hello. And it's just me and Tori for this one. So you might have heard Tori if you listened to our Why We Love Harry Potter episode, and she knew way more about Harry Potter than I do. And so this one, she's just kind of along for the ride, right? Yep. Uh, But I'm really excited to get to do this with her because not only has she seen all the material that we're going to talk about, but she was actually, and this is, this might be the only thing I think I've ever talked about on the podcast that I could say this about with us. We were on this journey together. You know, with a lot of these franchises, you know, I, maybe I had seen all the films and then I was the one bringing Tori in or with like Harry Potter, you had seen the films and you were kind of bringing me into everything. Mm-hmm. This one, we, we went into it together we were blind we were blind we had no idea what we were getting into right Mm -hmm. and i just got to start off by saying like a huge kudos to that for you because that i stuck with it well (laughs) i actually i'm actually more impressed that you even started it to begin with honestly because i was against it i don't know if you were really against it i think you were just skeptical right Oh, that's a good word for it. Skeptical. Yeah. I I have heard for many, many years that, you know, Studio Ghibli is like the peak of animation. And I've always wanted to get around to watching these films, but I it just never happened. I wasn't they weren't around when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And um Well, nobody we knew knew them either. It's not like right. it's not like any of our friends were like, Oh, have you seen Totoro? And we're like, What? Yeah, we we didn't really have friends. Thing that you're like, hey, we're we're gonna watch these Japanese movies. Yeah, so that's basically what it was. Was like, you know, I hear about them a lot, and I, I'm as someone who likes film, I I'm very interested in like hearing what the best are, you know, what people perceive and all that. So I do make Tori sit through a lot of things. And this was one of them. And so we're going to do a whole episode on them. So if you don't know what Studio Ghibli is, and if you don't know what the All Things Narrative podcast is, and let me be the first to just say welcome. We're glad you're here if this is your first time. So at All Things Narrative, we are really focused with these Why We Love episodes, which have been the third uh, Tuesdays of every month that they've been releasing. We're really focused at analyzing why do we love a certain series or set of stories, right? Um, these are the stories that have sunken into our pop culture and have had huge waves of influence. And we want to try to understand why. Why? What is it about these stories that we're so uh, gravitating towards and that we resonate with so deeply um, that we spend an hour and a half talking about them? So... This is, you know, we we started these in March, and this is number nine right now. And this is kind of one I've been building up to a bit because this is, I'm going to just say it, my opinion on this. I think of all the series that we've done, I think this is the best collection of films out of any of them. Agree or disagree? I don't know. I don't really have that opinion formed. Yeah. Um, I will say this one doesn't seem as influential on culture 
as the other ones, but that's because we're in America. Right. So it's so, good to good to start off by saying that Studio Ghibli, it is a Japanese company. Um, they're an animation studio, and we'll get into the history of it in a little bit. But basically, they have become very prominent globally, um, and we'll kind of get into how they got to that place. But... Um, yeah, what I, what I basically mean, though, is that, like, if we look at each in terms of, like, the quality of the films, right? All the X-Men films, all the uh, Spider-Man, Marvel films, all the Star Wars films, all the Harry Potter films, um, all the Lord of the Rings and Narnia films. I think this, if you average out the quality of them all, I think this comes out the highest, at least in my opinion. And I think part of that is because Studio Ghibli, these films are so incredibly diverse they do have overlapping ideas and themes but man watching these all like back to back over you know it took us about roughly almost a year right i remember we like even longer yeah this was back in 2019 that we started and it was in like i think march or something that we we did the first one and we went all the way till around christmas time so it took us a while, and we didn't even do all of them in the first round. We actually There's left so many. Yeah, so I mean, we actually left like six off, I think, or something like that, maybe eight. So yeah, so it was interesting, you know, just seeing like, wow, these films are so different from each other. And I kind of had a little bit of an idea of what we were going to get into, and tried to give you a little bit of heads up, like, oh, this one is going to be really sad. Oh, this one's going to be really cute and fun, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, if you haven't seen any of these films at all, then I'm going to try not to spoil them, but there's going to be moments where you can't not with some of these. So if you haven't seen these, I really highly encourage you to check them out. You won't be disappointed. Not all of these films are going to hit for you. I think they're too diverse to hit with everybody. But I do think that there is at least going to be a few Ghibli films for every person that you're really going to connect with. Because that's just how, that's fair. yeah, that's just how well, well made and how uh, universal a lot of these films are in their themes. So I'll also give the preface here that we did not watch these in the subs. So we watched all of these in dub form because I don't think I could have convinced you to do this if we did them all in subtitles. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. Well, it's hard because we watch some of these with our kids and obviously they're not reading yet. So it made more sense to watch the English version than you can't. Yeah, that is true. Some of these we watched for the first time with our kids and we'll tell you which ones those are. Um, We'll tell you which ones are good for kids as well. If you know, not all of them parents. Yeah. So um, we'll talk a lot about that. But yeah, so I know a lot of people are like purists about the subs and stuff. And, you know, I try to look at like the differences and try to understand them. But um, yeah, so these are all based on the dubbed versions. So, um, yeah, are we ready to get into this? kind of a little bit differently if you listen to our x-men episode this will be a bit familiar but essentially instead of doing like the history separate um talking about the themes and analysis separately we're going to kind of mix it all together so that way um you can kind of see hand in hand how this all developed here 
And so we are going to really highlight the 10 films that were directed by Hayao Miyazaki, who's kind of the most influential, I would say, architect of Studio Ghibli. And so we're going to look at all 10 of his films. After we do his 10 films, we will end by talking about our rankings. And along the way, we'll share how these inspire us to live a meaningful story as well. So, because you can't help but mention that as you're talking about these films. So the first one we're going to talk about, and we watch these all in the order that they were made. So that's the order. We'll talk about them here as well. So the first one we're going to talk about is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which is a mouthful of a title. So in case you haven't seen these, I'll give like these really brief synopsis uh, that I found on Letterboxd here. So for Nausicaa, it's after a global war. The seaside kingdom known as the Valley of the Wind remains one of the last strongholds on Earth, untouched by a poisonous jungle and the powerful insects that guard it. Led by the courageous Princess Nausicaa, the people of the valley engage in an epic struggle to restore the bond between humanity and Earth. So, Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata are kind of the two primary founders of Studio Ghibli. But this film is actually bef- was created before Studio Ghibli even existed. This film was made uh, because... I think it was an editor of a Japanese, like a manga magazine or something like that. And his name was Toshio Suzuki. His name will come up a lot in these. And he was kind of more of that like producer role. And he knew Miyazaki as they had collaborated. And he said, you know, Miyazaki, you should really, should really make a, make a film, make a feature of your own original work. And so Miyazaki had this idea for a long time of wanting to make a story um, of basically what becomes Nausicaa. But back then, this is about the early 80s, if you wanted to make an anime, uh, you couldn't just do something original. You had to adapt something, adapt a book, adapt a manga, something like that. So um, Suzuki said, why don't you create a manga for Nausicaa? He said, okay, I will. So we actually have it on the shelf up there. I haven't read it yet. I I mean, I know it's phenomenal from everything I've heard. But he started writing and telling the story, and then it got really popular as a manga. And then uh, Suzuki was able to get some sponsors to uh, finance the film being made. And so it was made um, with this uh, partnering. Sorry. Yeah. Manga is just a comic book. Yeah, it's like a Japanese comic book. Um, format so essentially um they make the film so it's miyazaki and takahata's there too takahata's helping produce it and make it as well uh suzuki's there as the producer and then takahata says hey i got this great guy who can do music i think we should bring him in he's an experimental jazz musician and his name is joe hisaichi so they bring him in and those four people right there that's basically like the foundation of Studio Ghibli, right? Um, Suzuki produces every film. Um, Most of the films are either produced or directed by Miyazaki or Takahata. And so they're involved in every way except for one film. And Joe does, uh, he does most of the music um, for a lot of the films. Not all of them, but he does it for quite a few of them. And he's definitely in the one that when we think of the Ghibli sound, that score, that soundtrack, or what our kids listen to, that's his songs that, that we're hearing constantly, right? Um, which, do they ever get annoying to you? 
Surprisingly not. I like the soundtracks. We listen to them in the car um, because the kids like it. And it's a lot less annoying than a lot of other soundtracks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when Miyazaki wanted to make Nausicaa, um, he was really inspired. There's an old uh, folk tale. I'm not sure if it's Japanese or not, but it's called The Girl Who Loves Insects. <laughs> Your face squinched up with that. Yeah, there's a lot of bug stuff in this movie. And I think that's that's actually one of the reasons why he picked bugs is because you can't really make bugs redeemable. You know, I know Pixar tried with a bug's life, but... Nobody cares about bugs. Nobody, yeah, so that's actually why he picked bugs because... Um, he wanted to be able to take something of nature that many people despise and abhor and actually explain how they're vital and important to it. Note how he didn't have mosquitoes in there. Yep, he still didn't pick mosquitoes because, you know, they're, <laughs> still, they're still the worst. <laughs> so he was also inspired by some... These early Miyazaki works are very Western in how they're influenced. So Nausicaa is... Uh, it's very post-apocalyptic. Yeah, so it's very influenced by Dune, actually. That was a huge that. influence for it. Um, but he was also influenced by Lord of the Rings. That was a big one um, for Nausicaa. Um, and even the Odyssey, he claims as an influence. Um, hmm. So, yeah, in fact, I have these like cool director statements. Uh, so every time he comes up with a project, he get, he has a pitch that he, he proposes. Um, to, you know, not just to himself, but to everybody involved. A uh, thesis statement. Yeah, it's like a thesis statement, exactly. You and, you know, it's not hard to figure out what these movies are about. Because not only are the films so well written that you can tell, but Miyazaki is very good at explaining what he wants to get across, including who his audience is and what he's hoping for them to take away. So this is what he says for Nausicaa. So he said, For the past few years, I have put forth ideas for film projects with the following ethos. To offer a sense of liberation to present-day young people who, in the suffocating, overprotective, and overmanaged society, find their path to self-reliance, independence, blocked, and therefore have become neurotic. A major theme of this work is the manner in which people engage with nature, the nature surrounding them and upon which they are dependent. Can hope even exist during this twilight era? So Nausicaa comes out. It's a massive success. It's huge. It's so big, actually, that Miyazaki continues doing the manga for 10 years. 10 years? 10 years. 1994 is when he finally Dang. stops. Um, and there's a reason why he stops, and I'll get there later. But, yeah, it goes on for 10 years. That's how successful. And that's how much he loves the project, too. He's really invested in telling that story. So we really see in this film the seeds of what Ghibli is going to be, which is going to be kind of like the trifecta of Ghibli in terms of themes is young, strong female protagonist coming of age story, environmentalism, and the horrors of war. Every Ghibli film is a combination of at least two of those three things. Yeah. And here in Nausicaa, you get all three of them to start. So, Tori, as you're kind of hearing, you know, the director's statement and some of this behind-the-scenes stuff of Nausicaa, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Nausicaa was a great intro for us coming mm-hmm. from the Western mindset because it still had kind of the flow of like a Western epic type movie. Yes, um, yes. So it was a good intro point. Definitely. Um, for us. We've gotten to the point where our kids can watch it too. It's a little intense for kids. Yeah, it, it doesn't but, work for the younger one. Um, but, but yeah, but anything that really stands out to you in it? I like the idea of restoration. Mm. Um, I like that theme that's in there. I really, um, anytime there's a movie that's showing something broken, but showing the hope that Mm -hmm. things can be restored, um, is always a win in my mind. Yeah. It is a very hopeful film, especially with the ending too. You know, Mm -hmm. the ending is actually different from the manga as well. Um, the manga went on for 10 years. The manga is a lot dark. It is a lot bleaker. Um, because there's a lot more story well, that, that they tell. Well, anytime you have to stretch a story for 10 years, you're, you're going to go. Right, right. You're not going to have as clean of an ending. Right. But, um, but you know, Nausicaa's a great uh, aspirational hero, right? Like, Because Nausicaa's kind of supposed to be like who we want, who everyone well, in the story should want to be like. the savior figure. Right. She's the one yes, very much like a savior figure. They're all talking about this savior king that's going to come, and then it turns out it's her. So, yes, she is the... Right. Aspirational hero, as you would say. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely is. And she's got the cutest little fox squirrel. That's what that thing is called. Um, it's just like adorable. I wish those existed in real life. You know, I think the the what this film builds to in that final like climactic sequence with the warrior god that they resurrect that's not ready, right? And then all the, the ohm, the bugs that are stampeding and Nasca trying to figure out how to like. There's so much chaos going on, but you're so invested in it all. And um, yeah, it's a it's a solid first film. Very solid to to jump into. You know, yeah. I don't think it's the best of what they have to offer, but it's a great um, intro. Um, especially like what you said, if if you're more Western, it's like okay, I can I can come into this right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you know, Nasca. Oscar's great, and it did really well, and it's been very influential um, in the the genre for some time. Cool. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, let's go to the next one. So the second one we'll talk about is Castle in the Sky. I'll read the little uh, description here. A young boy and a girl with a magical crystal must race against pirates and foreign agents in search for a legendary floating castle. All, that's all it gave me there. Sounds like a fantasy. Yep. It is very uh, fantasy adventure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll tell you a little, a little about the development of this. So after Nausicaa, Miyazaki wanted to make another film, uh, but wanted to be able to do it on his own terms uh, and have full control of the process. And he so didn't this have is full control over Nausicaa? Um, it's not to say that he didn't, but all the animation was outsourced. So what we'll learn about Miyazaki is that he wants to be very hands-on with the animation. Not only is Miyazaki as a director personally drawing Mm -hmm. many of these these cells, but he's personally overseeing them Mm -hmm. to an an obsessive compulsory. Sounds like it. Yeah. That's probably why it takes them so long to put out It's why it takes them extremely long to put out films. You're trying to get into one man's mind. Yes. Um, and he knows he knows what he wants. He's very firm on what he wants. So, and if you can't give it to him, you'll do it again and again until you can. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, uh, along with Takahata and and Joe Hisashi and um, Suzuki, they found Studio Ghibli. Which do you know what the name where the name comes from? Do tell. So Ghibli, it's actually a there's a double meaning to it. So Ghibli is an Italian word that refers to a World War II uh, Italian uh, fighter plane. They like planes, don't they? Yes. Because Ghibli is also a word that means a fresh and new wind. Like it's a wind that's coming from a a new direction, right? And so when they found Ghibli, they said, we wanted to bring a fresh wind um, to animation, to the animation industry. Very cool. And so what he wanted to start off with, what they wanted their first film to be out for Ghibli, it's very intentional. All the same people are back for it uh, creatively. And they wanted to tell a film that make a film that was really rooted in classic animation. So the animation that all of those people fell in love with, right? And so the storytelling, it's influenced by a lot of uh, classic stories, like classic fiction. So like Gulliver's Travels, um, Treasure Island, uh, you know, things like that. There's even a bit of a steampunk aesthetic to it as well. Um, it's very like late 1800s, early 1900s. But yeah, so it's very Western, um, very Spielberg-like, very adventurous. Yes, for sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, lots of action, very action-packed. Uh, one of the only Ghibli films that has a clear, uh, like a clearly villainous antagonist. Um, the, the morality of the characters gets a lot more gray as we go on. But um, we have a clear good and clear evil but we still have some more ambiguity with the pirates yeah, you know with doll and the pirate game are not not your friend and then they right are right again, so yeah he's also influenced by whales which we've talked about going to for so long um that's actually most likely you know even though it's like a fictional story that's kind of where the town and all that stuff is inspired by this the the landscape and the animation because um he visited there while there was like a miner's uh, strike going on. Mm-hmm. So all that stuff about going to the mines and mm-hmm. everything, that all comes from real oh, life experiences that he's trying to bring to light about the minor situation in Wales. But here's what he says. Here's his proposal for this film. He says, this is going to be a 90 minute film that aims to be fun, intense, thrilling, a classic action film. It will have laughter, tears, and a sentimentally honest spirit, and will all depict themes of emotional bonding and self-sacrifice, things modern audiences are skeptical of, but without realizing it, really crave. This is a project to bring animation back to its roots. So do you think he achieved that? The thing that stood out was a sincere and honest, because um, I will say that the they're not annoying. Mm-hmm. that's what I like. And same with Nausicaa. It's like the, the main character, even though it might be like a coming of age, but at the same time, they're rooted in honesty. They're rooted in their morals as that main character. Right, right. And that, and they're growing in that. Right, um, right. So I do, I do like that about both of those films. And, um, and just the, the, I don't know. It's almost like the purity of their honesty. Like, between yeah, there's, yeah, the purity is a good word boy, for that. Like, it, it's like very much like you're doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do. Um, and, and, and then the boy, um, it's just this very, 
It's this very innocent, like, I want to know this castle in the sky. Like, I want to go see it. Like, yeah, my dad two. talked about yeah. this. Like, I, I want to go do this. And if you're going, I'm going, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very mm-hmm. sweet. Yeah, I think so, too. And I think this is a film that, like, this is like a crowd pleaser film. This oh, is like yeah. the kind of film that, like, I can't, I can't imagine somebody watching it and just hating it. Like, this really seems like a film that, like, you could just throw on with a group of people. People will have a good time. You know, again, it might not be like the favorite film uh, for a lot of people for Ghibli, but it is like a, it's just solid. It's just good. And it's it's fun. geared toward like older kids. It's not for like little, little ones. I feel like it's yeah, geared I also, toward like that. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a couple highlights um, for me. And um, I really, really, um, this is where the music, like I, the not, music in Oscar was cool, but then this music is like, oh, this is like really pretty, um, just very moving. And there's just so many great sequences. Um, I mean, the pirates are so much fun, you know, um, especially as you get to kind of see how their role changes. Um, but I think the standout moment for me is kind of once they get to Laputa, once they get to the castle in the sky. And you have that very quiet moment for a while where they're just up there and they see the robot, which the robot, they saw one version of the robot earlier and it was like a threat. But then they see the robot here. Um, and, and technology is a huge theme too in a lot of these films. Is like, what's the proper place of technology? And it's super on the nose here. But this idea of like a, a robot that's tending a garden. So you have technology serving nature, right? I think that's, that's really cool. And that's just such a great image. And same with technology serving um, Patsu and Cheetah, right? Showing them around the castle. Whereas earlier they were using technology and they were trying to you know with uh muska and his guys they were trying to kind of find out how to manipulate this this robot and kind of like the warrior god in nasca as well so yeah it's it's technology you know it's not anti-technology it's like where's technology in its proper place um with yeah, nature i can see that yeah so and i do think it's very intense it's got a very intense final showdown yes it is definitely intense it's not one that you fall asleep during no, no, it's definitely, it's definitely a, a good one to check out. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, then definitely, definitely go to this one. This could be another great intro one as well. Um, I think the characters will get more developed and refined and the storytelling will get a little more sophisticated over time. But again, another solid film and a great first one. But it's interesting because this film actually does not do as well as Nausicaa when it comes out. It becomes influential culturally quite a bit um, for creators and for audiences as well, um, particularly anime and gaming. You know, this film doesn't do super well, but it does okay. It does well enough to where Ghibli has some credit out there. Now, Miyazaki actually, looking back on this film, he's actually not super proud of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually doesn't like some of the influence that it's unintentionally had um, in anime Especially like when you see Miyazaki and how he depicts violence later, you'll see that he kind of changes violence being from spectacle to violence being very gut wrench. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. This feels more like blockbuster, like yeah, type of sure. violence, and he kind of starts to shy away from that. But nonetheless, when we get to go to the Ghibli Museum one day in Japan, um, you're greeted by the giant robot outside the museum. They have a statue of it.
um, that comes up is My Neighbor Totoro. So My Neighbor Totoro, two sisters, move to the country with their father in order to be closer to their hospitalized mother and discover the surrounding trees are inhabited by Totoros, magical spirits of the forest. When the youngest runs away from home, the older sister seeks help from the spirits to find her. Miyazaki wanted to create a more Japanese film um, with this, and he was very inspired by this image of a girl waiting at a bus stop with an umbrella and this Totoro uh, creature, um, which he had been developing the design for for a while for another project of his, um, which we'll talk about later. So it's actually funny. Totoro was actually designed for, um, you want to guess which Miyazaki film? No. Princess Mononoke. Oh, God. <laughs> That's a total different. Yep. Um, you had a, um, cause Totoro is a very lighthearted film, right? Yes. It's very much about that childlike wonder and innocence. And I know people loves it. Oh yeah. Our two year old, (laughs) this is their favorite thing ever. Ever. When when we went to Barnes and Noble for her birthday a year ago and I let her pick anything in the store, she found a little Totoro and said, he needs me. <laughs> and she and sleeps, she sleeps with, that with that Totoro every, every night, night to this day. So yeah, Totoro is big, and Totoro does eventually become the icon of Studio Ghibli, right? When they start merchandising, mm-hmm. which is not till about another six years or so after this. But Miyazaki actually had a hard time getting Totoro made. This was the pitch that he made the the director statement, which is that to- my neighbor Totoro aims to be happy and heartwarming. A film that lets the audience go home with pleasant good feelings and something that a parent and a child could, could sit down together. and enjoy. For the child to kind of capture this wonder of like, wow, there's a there's a great world out there I want to go check out. Mm-hmm. And for parents, kind of that nostalgic like, wow, it's a magical time to be a child. Do you think he really capture that with this film? Absolutely. I think that's a totally on the nose there. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a very... You know, it's very whimsical. It's very, I don't want to say it's slow. It's very leisurely, right? It takes its time. Yeah, you don't, yeah, it has a different pace than all the other ones. Yeah. That, we, that we've mentioned prior, um, which is why I like it because the other ones are too fast for little kids mm-hmm. to where they don't understand what's going on. They can't keep up with all the characters, what's going on and right. why are they fighting? Why are they not fighting? What's going on? Like this is a very slow pace that's easy to comprehend, easy to understand that doesn't have a lot of, um, it's just, it's just chill and calm and happy for most part and even the climax you could say it gets a little more intense when it gets more intense it's like a very reasonable amount of intensity like something that a child can understand and can actually relate to yeah yeah there is this idea of coping with challenges right because they have a mom that's sick Mm -hmm. um that's actually based off of miyazaki's real life mom um, who also was sick while he was growing up mm-hmm. um, with tuberculosis. And, um, you know, Miyazaki very much saw himself in the character of um, of Satsuki, mm, I could that see. older sibling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he was even the oldest, but that sibling trying to take responsibility for the and family. take care of the younger yeah. one. Yeah, and of course you have the Totoros um, influenced by, I think they're called Kami. They're like the Japanese like forest spirits or something like that. Yeah, I mean this this is where like the score is get the scores are get the music's getting better, the mm-hmm. animation's getting better, the story's getting tighter. Yeah, yeah, at. yeah. The countryside. I mean, mm-hmm. 
It's all you'll see this pattern, and it starts with Totoro of like leaving the city and moving yes. to the countryside, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So I like it because I feel like the kids feel super realistic. Yeah. They they actually They seem like kids. They seem like kids. Yeah. Not like our film idea of kids, you mm-hmm. know? They actually seem like real living, breathing kids. And, you know, it's good to see like the parents, like the dad, you know, who's just super supportive and isn't like, oh, you're making this up or, you know, he's very supportive of their adventures. Yes. And what they're doing. And he's also very, it's also a very realistic picture of parents. Yes. You know? Yeah. They're not just like a superhero or they're not like totally like letting the kids do whatever they want. Like they're, you know, it's a good balance. And you get a cat bus. How do you not love a cat bus, right? I mean- where else are you going to see a cat bus in anything? So, yeah, My Neighbor Totoro, um, it's awesome. Um, it's If you have little kids, I cannot recommend this enough. This this is a great film for little kids. Well, and and I this is probably one of my favorites. Yeah, same here. Because I enjoy watching it with my kids, and it's not something that I have to explain to my kids as they as I as I go and it's also not something where I have to like pause it and like right, talk right. about morality or talk about something or or like you know backtrack um yeah. because something's happening that I don't think is good like the 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 whole thing at the end is like you know the one the little girl runs off without mm-hmm. telling anybody <laughs> yeah and that's like the whole thing is they're trying to find her and and you see how terrifying that is yeah you really do you really see how yeah. like how that is really not only is it dangerous because they're worried about her like you know the whole idea of her drowning in the pond that's mm-hmm, terrifying mm-hmm. or her like missing doesn't mm-hmm. know where she is um so like it really does a good job of showing like this is why we don't run away from <laughs> yeah you know this You've is why we don't run that. away I always appreciate yeah. when a story can tell a moral that I'm like please you're, get you're, this yeah thing you're your behind heads. that one like that is yeah. a good moral don't run away yeah. without you know and and I know you like you're, you're gonna you're gonna hear throughout this podcast that some of these films are very leisurely and they're paced right because yes. in the West we're very Go, go, go. We're, yeah, lots of action. I can't, I don't even let my kids watch any modern shows besides Bluey um, yeah. because the animation and the story, there's not enough time to like digest everything. It's so there's not enough time to understand what's going paced. on. Yeah. yeah. So, like, don't let the leisurely pacing turn you off of and these films. And it doesn't because, feel like it drags. It definitely no, it doesn't. doesn't feel like it drags. You know, um, we have two two kids. Our oldest one can sit through anything pretty much. She's got an incredible attention span. Always has from yeah. when she was a little baby and yep. still has that. Yep. Our youngest one tends to wander and get well, bored with things. She's not even three. But, she's but, almost three. Right. So. But she will sit through Totoro the entire movie Which is um, with its leisurely pacing because she's just, she's just vibing and enjoying it. Yeah. And so... Well, and and I will caveat that if you're sitting with her watching it, yeah. If if you think that you can just like turn it on and go do laundry or something, no, you should always that, be that, watching things always with watch your kids, things anyways. With your kids, yeah. If, you can't just like turn something on and yep. walk away because so true. Now this film was a double bill because the sponsors didn't have enough faith in it; they didn't think it was going to be worth anything. So the only reason why the film got made was because they were really invested in Takahata's film which is Grave of the Fireflies. And they said, and Suzuki, as the great producer he is, said, okay, if you make Grave of the Fireflies, you have to make Totoro, we have to sponsor Totoro too. They said, fine. And they, Grave of the Fireflies, which is probably um, 
the the best film I've ever seen that I will never watch again, right? Accurate. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, was created with the hopes that school children could learn about the war. Little field trips to go see Grave of Fireflies. How old are these children? Elementary. Elementary. And middle school. Yep. Maybe middle school. I could see that. But elementary. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, so imagine getting a double bill and the order changed. It varied. You, so you never knew what the order was going to be, which one was going to go first, which was going to be second. How does the double bill work? Like you watch both movies back to back? You watch the first movie, you have, an you have an intermission, and then you go back and watch the second one. So imagine watching Grave of the Fireflies, getting your Ooh. heart ripped out. Then you go back in and watch Totoro. La, 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 la. Or you watch Totoro and you're happy and feel good, and then you <laughs> and then watch Grave of the Fireflies. Fire. I wouldn't have wanted that one. No, that no. would have been the hard one. Um, I don't think I would have wanted to watch them together. They do not match at all. It's funny, though, because even though they don't, they actually do in a lot of... There actually is a lot of similarities. I mean, there is. There's the two siblings. The older takes care of the younger. I get that. And even the time period is similar, oh, too. Okay. You know? So there's certain ideas there. The um, level of intensity is very, yes. very different. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> Toronto is um, like a one so, on intensity, so, and the Grave of the Firefly is like a 910. Right. Like, so do you think? Different. do you think this double bill did well? I doubt it. Yeah, you're right. It did not do well. Didn't do well at all, but both films were very highly praised and acclaimed. Just not together. So, right. Gotcha. But even though financially it didn't make a lot of money, critically it got a lot of attention. So even um, Roger Ebert, you know, the most famous film critic um, in in American history, um, had a glowing endorsement for it, which was huge in you know, eventually later, it, it like getting Ghibli films to really come out to America and, and grow in the West was a very gradual process. So like Roger Ebert, like giving the film a perfect rating is a that was like a that helped build the momentum a little bit. Is this and, after this the point? Because I feel like with all of these how we love franchises, is this the point where they go bankrupt because they tried too hard. Yes, it and is. And then they go bankrupt. Because I promise you I did not like plan that single... out. We did not plan that out. Yes, you are correct though. I'm like, I bet you this is how it's gonna go. Because once that they point. make something that's awesome, it's like critically amazing, but the public is like, yeah, then they go bankrupt. Man, you were yes, you are absolutely oh, right. There's a theme this in is all of this. this is the moment moment here the double bill broke the studio um it was very hard to recover from this Mm. and so they were desperate this is probably the most desperate studio ghibli ever is um most people in the press are saying they will not make it they are saying that they're done miyazaki already had this idea of adapting a short novel called kiki's delivery service And at first he wasn't going to direct it. Um, But then seeing the desperate state the studio is in, takes the reins himself and in one year makes the whole film. Seriously? In one year? Didn't all the other ones take like five plus years? No, no. Um, I feel like they were But he does it in a year. One year. Rushes Kiki. I because, love Kiki. But that but these people at Ghibli were working like their jobs and their livelihood depended on it. Well, they did. Because it did. <laughs> so this this film um I'll read the little uh synopsis here of it. A young witch on her mandatory year of independent life finds fitting into a new community difficult while she supports herself by running an air courier or delivery del, uh delivery service. So 
Kiki, um, the author, the writer of the book that they got the permission for the rights for was not happy originally with what they wanted to change with the story. But then Miyazaki invited her in and showed her. Is it a Japanese story or who's I actually don't know. From? That's a good question. Because it doesn't feel very Japanese. At least the, yeah. the way it looks. Right. You know, the looks of it. Kiki, it looks very different from yeah, like Totoro. Kiki is very European. Yeah, it feels like, like it. Kiki is meant to feel like the idealized European city okay. as if World War II never happened. That's that's actually and what he says about it. Clock towers and, and it's very very and innocent. And yep, and he takes the best of a lot of his European travels and gotcha. kind of like he literally had the animators draw a map, like a, a real map of the thing, so that way when they were making it, they actually had a real working map. That's Makes how. Sense. Yeah, it feels really alive. So I think this this might be Miyazaki's best looking town that he's ever created in any film. I can't think of another film where this. The, it's that pretty. It's that pretty. Yeah. And you, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I'm not a big city person, but I would live there. You yeah. know, it's it's just stunning. This is what his uh, director statement is for Kiki. He says, it is no longer appropriate to refer to leaving one's parents as a rite of passage because all it takes today to live on one's own society is the ability to shop at the local convenience store. The true independence girls must now confront involves the far more difficult task of discovering their own talents. I feel that this film will fulfill its goal of reaching out with a feeling of solidarity to our young viewers. The young girls living in today's world who do not deny the joy of youth, nor are carried away by it, torn between freedom and dependence. Kiki is a film that's very much has a target audience of young adults. Um, even though Kiki's only 13, there's this idea of teens and young adults who are transitioning into adulthood. That's really the target that he's going for here with Kiki. And this film is so draining and exhausting that Miyazaki actually wants to retire after making it. Well, if you did the whole thing in a year... Right. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, he wants to be done after this. It's made for young women mainly, but also young men as well, trying to head into the world and find their place. Um, they also get a lot of money from advertising because, you know, the logo that they show for Kiki's delivery service in the movie, you know, her little witch and her cat yeah. Gigi, right? And and all that. That actually is a real logo of a delivery company in Japan. Nice. And they actually paid top to dollar it. to get that logo in the movie. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, Kiki is, do you think it's a success or a failure? Probably a success. It is their biggest success. Yeah. It is the film that saved Studio Ghibli. Without Kiki, we probably would not have Studio Ghibli. Yeah. It really is the film that carries them forward. It's massively successful. And it's one of, it might, it's one of the first, maybe it even is the first, um, when Disney starts bringing Ghibli films to America in the 90s, I think Kiki is the first one they do. Um, I think in 1997, I think they do that first. I'm not 100% sure on that. But yeah, when you think of Kiki, what are your thoughts on on Kiki? Well, I just love Kiki. Um, I really like that one too. I mean, it also, it's not like a super fast paced one either. Which more I leisurely, like. yeah. It's more leisurely, but it's not as leisurely as Totoro. Um and I just like like watching her grow up. Like she starts out and she's not like um like she's a lot more 
trying to think of the word, not immature, I guess you could say immature, but you see her maturing as the film goes on. Like she starts out kind of like that more like, Oh, what's everyone going to think of me? There's an insecurity. There's an insecurity there. Have you ever, have you you ever, then you see her like, you know, starting to grow out of that where she matures and she's not so like, you know, the way she treats her friends, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. or the people, her peer group, you know, at first she's just like on the outside wanting to be like them. Right. And then when they invite them in, she's like, no. Yeah. And then, and then like she starts to, by the end, you know, she starts to kind of accept who she is. Right. And then because of that, she's able to actually make friends and like feel more a part of the community. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever heard the theory that Gigi is Kiki's subconscious? You have told me that. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? When you watch the movie that way, Kiki, uh, Gigi is her cat. Um, And you're like, when you see certain scenes and you see Gigi is like, you start to wonder, is Gigi expressing what Kiki's really feeling right now? And it's interesting because I think for me, Kiki might be my favorite protagonist Mm -hmm. of any of the Ghibli films. I think as a character, there's just the most I could see of her. Like, I think she's really well thought out. Yes. Um, She's incredibly relatable. This is definitely a movie that if you are a starter, like if you like an entrepreneur, a creative, anything like that, this well, is this is a kids great going, you know, starting a new school. Yeah. Any any new chapter that you're starting in life, this is a great film to watch because it doesn't sugarcoat it by saying that you're going to get that job and everything's going to work out okay and you're going to always get to do what you love and that you're always going to love what you what you do. do. Yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting, right? The way that she deals with that and has to kind of rediscover why she loves flying. Mm-hmm. So Kiki is a very inspirational film. I think it's a film that, again, whether you're a kid, it's great. If you're an adult, um, it's great. I think the messages really carry well. Um, it is, yeah, it is for me top tier Ghibli. Um, I think this is definitely the best film they have up to this point. Um, I'm kind of with the the critics there. Like, I think this is, you know, this is incredible. This is where you start watching in the marathon and you're kind of like, okay, these are, this is pretty like pretty flawless track record, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't talk about Grave of the Fireflies, but as hard as that is, you can't deny how good of a film it is. So, and how effective it is and what it's doing. So it's like- Grave of the Fireflies is an excellent, excellent. It's, it's one of those types of movies that really like makes you evaluate your thoughts on things and evaluate your biases toward things like war and um, justice and things like that. So Grave of the Fireflies is an excellent movie. However, it is also a movie that you have to be prepared mentally for. Right, right. It's not something you're like, oh, what do you want to do? Oh, let's watch a movie. Let's Um, watch Grave of the Fireflies. Yeah, because it's, it's a movie that you can't not feel right and you can't not um consider and think about um yeah yeah so this is the end of the 80s so when we get and the, the output is very high Now, when we get to the 90s, things start to spread out a little more. So we start to see other works from people other than Miyazaki and Takahata. 
we start to see experiments like a television film that they make uh, called Ocean Waves. Um, and we get to see Miyazaki do something that he's wanted to do for a while, this kind of idea that he would sketch out and did little mangas for in magazines and stuff. And that's this idea of what if pigs could fly, a.k.a. Porco Rosso. I think this is uh, his most, until we get to The Wind Rises, is a very autobiographical film in a lot of ways. I don't know if you know this, but when Miyazaki does his self-portrait, he always draws himself as a pig. Um, because that's interesting because he hates pigs and all the I don't, Ghibli movies. I don't think he necessarily hates pigs. But I they're think always representatives of something bad or they're, they're, dark. They're or cursed. cursed. That's the idea. Yeah, and like, Miyazaki has said that he believes that he is cursed. Um, cursed with what? Famously, he has said that um, animation was a mistake for uh-huh. me to get into. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there is this idea in pigs that the pig is cursed in some way. And he sees himself as that because I think for him, he gets to a point in his career. He's very hopeful in these early films. Um, You will see soon. He starts getting really cynical and it's because he believes that he is not making a difference, that he is not inspiring or influencing any change. So that's why Porco Rosso is the story that it is. I take it because that's Um, basically the character. Yeah, He's I a think cynical guy who's good at what he does. Yeah, I do think he does. I do think Porco Rosso still has a hint of optimism into it, especially yeah. with the ending. Yeah, but I do think you are starting to see a little bit of you know Porco Rosso was um, uh, here. I'll read the little description here that'll that'll kind of explain it. Known as the Crimson Pig and a World War One um, fighter ace, um, now living as a freelance bounty hunter chasing air pirates. He's been given a curse that changed um, himself into a pig. And so we find out in the film that the reason why the, this curse has come upon him, or at least why he believes the curse has come upon him, is because um, in battle, um, his whole squad, whatever, whatever you call them, they, they died, right? Or they, they went into the sky. That whole that's, I think the best scene in the film is that flashback. And then um, he survives, so there's a bit of the survivor's guilt, right? And there's also this idea to get into his war themes a little bit where he doesn't really want to play the war game. So he's kind of choosing to sit out. Mm-hmm. So that's why he has to become a bounty hunter. Because at least if he's a bounty hunter, he can do some good, right? So he saves the little girls at the beginning, yeah. which is also one of my favorite scenes because the girls are like, the kids are just so like, yay, we get to go with the pirate and just completely subverts what you think that scenario is going to go. Mm-hmm. Like if it's, if we were to make that in America, it'd be so dramatic and like the kids would be freaking out yeah. here. The kids are like, Ooh, I want to go explore the boat and all there's like a, an innocence to it. You know, mm-hmm. since Ghibli is in a good place, Miyazaki um, is willing to try something like this more and people are willing to sponsor it as well. The actual idea for Porco Rosso came from a Japanese uh, airline. That said, hey, can you make a short for us that we could play on both uh, domestic and international flights? He said, sure, I'll make something. So here's kind of his uh, his statement here that he makes. And it was originally supposed to be a short. And um, as with many of these films, it gets expanded uh, into a, a longer film. He says, Porco Rosa is designed to be a work that businessmen exhausted from international flights can enjoy even if their minds have been dulled from a lack of oxygen. 
It must also be a work that boys and girls can enjoy. It is fun and upbeat, but not an over-the-top party. It is dynamic, but not obstructive. It is a balance of love, but needs no lust. To create a town that people would like to visit, a sky through which people would like to fly, a secret hideaway we ourselves would want, and a worry-free, stirring, uplifting world. So post-World War I, very European, again, it's a little bit more jazzy, right? Like the score is a little more jazzy, uh, very Casablanca influence. You know, you got the... It's almost opera-ish or that style of singing. Yeah, it's very like lounge. Like they like they literally have a scene in a right. nightclub, right, of singing, you know? The so girls don't like the music as much to this one. No, they don't. They're not um, as into it. I really like this one. It's different. It's got mm-hmm. a different feel than the rest of the films, which is refreshing and nice. So I don't think we've watched this with the girls. We did actually watch it with Addie. Addie was not into it. Yeah. She did not like this one. And she still doesn't really want to watch it. And I don't really think she's a target. I think, you know, he said this made this film is made for middle-aged men. Yeah. You know? And I think this is a definitely a film that I know a lot of adults really like. Mm-hmm. Because it even though it's animated in a sense that it it looks very charming and not too threatening or or dark. Um, it feels very light. But there's something very They're not ad- super light. There's like war and flashbacks and people beating each other. And yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> it's not super light like Totoro. Yeah. You know, so it's a solid film. You only seen it once, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you were the biggest fan of it, but I wasn't the biggest fan. That's, that's okay. okay. It's not that it was a bad film. It yeah. wasn't one of those films where you're watching and you're like, I can't wait for this to be over. Yeah. So. It's definitely entertaining. And it's short too. It goes by really quick. So um, lots of great characters, great moments. Another one I'd recommend. All right, that's going to be a wrap for part one. Uh, this just was so long of a discussion that we decided to break it up into two parts. So join us next week as we continue with um, some of Miyazaki's masterpieces, including his three most popular films, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, and Howl's Movie Castle. And at the end of that episode, we will reveal our rankings in which we will give our brief opinions of every Ghibli film that's been released, uh, including the non-Miyazaki ones. So join us next time for that. And until then, I hope you are doing well and living a meaningful story. Thank you so much and take care.